0: Randy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So I would love to start with your research on beauty and what people find attractive. You know, there's an idea today that beauty standards are socially constructed and uh, arbitrary, Uh, but your research has found that there is a very deeply rooted biological basis. So I would love to hear what you found, and we can start with... What men find attractive in women
1: okay, uh, well more generally the you know there's now a field of evolutionary aesthetics and it deals not only with human attraction and attractiveness but other domains in which we make aesthetic judgments like habitats and even values that traditionally was um, part of um, part of aesthetics so sticking to the um, human attraction and attractiveness. Let's start there. But more generally, I would say in that domain, uh, what I'll have to say about human attraction and attractiveness is now in biology understood to be a physical attractiveness theory uh, across theses. Like what is a beautiful bird uh, to another bird? And uh, what is a beautiful scorpion fly to another scorpion fly? It boils down to uh, physical attractiveness as a health certification. And now we'll stick to humans, more is known about human attraction and attractiveness than any other species by far. Research has been, and not just by me, but it's a whole research domain now in uh, social psychology and evolutionary biology, looking at human attraction and attractiveness. And so we can think about it as the dimensions of health. And we'll start out with uh, hormonal health. So um, uh, back in the old days, to say to speak, so to speak, uh, with the with the rise of the first vertebrates, was, that was a fish. There was the evolution of sexual dimorphism and the control of uh, uh, sexual development and sexual behavior, and that's. Uh, many, many, many years ago uh, with the evolution of sexual dimorphism and hormonal control. Um, And with testosterone being a control for for males and estrogen being a control for females. So uh, estrogen controls in females, uh, all aspects, basically of reproductive capacity from the uh, probability of of, uh, ovulation uh, through uh, healthy um, pregnancy and uh, and on and on and on, the ability to uh, nourish the baby uh, with the with the milk and so forth that's full of uh, full of uh, full of uh, estrogenized fat and all that. So um, the hormonal aspects uh, we start with, and basically <clears throat> what people look at and judge when they're talking about uh, an adult female's attractiveness it, are estrogen features. And we can start with the, with the body. Basically, the first thing people look at on a female bod is the ratio of the uh, waist to the hips. That's the first thing the eyes go to, according to research. And that's a marker of estrogenization of the female, low waist to hip ratio. So a wasp waist kind of female body with a expanded hip, low, uh, small waist. And then, um, then they move to the breasts and uh, perky breasts and uh, upright breasts and so forth, are estrogenized uh, breasts. And uh, thighs are important, the thigh structure and so forth. That's an estrogen marker as well. And um, then we can move to the face. And what happens at puberty and adolescence in females as they mature into a uh, semi-woman during the adolescence and puberty um, is that estrogen caps the growth of certain uh, facial bones. They're estrogen receptors in specific bones of the face of the female. And those bones are the chin, the jaw, uh, basically all the structures of the lower bones of the lower face and the eyebrow ridges and so forth in here. So estrogen caps the growth of those bones. And jumping to testosterone in men now, testosterone with growth hormone uh, increases the growth of the, those same bones in the male face. So that's why you get the sexual dimorphism in faces. So if you take female models, uh, facial models, uh, you know they have very, very small lower faces. You can measure that from when we do, we do a lot of this research like that, and uh, say the distance from the pupil of the eye to the bottom of the chin. Uh, In relation to the whole head, whole facial, frontal face. And so the female models that, you know, the ones that score the the pictures on the women's magazines, front uh, cover pictures on the women's magazines, they have a lower face about the size of a 14 year old girl. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it's very, very dramatic. And you you can even take those model faces off the cover digitize them into the computer and reduce the lower face more with the computer and they're rated more attractive than even they are on the cover.
0: Oh <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah. There's also this aspect of neoteny, right? Can you explain that to people?
1: Yeah, that's the same thing. It's just you look like a younger version of uh, your sex in the case. Right.
0: Of, big eyes.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we're,
0: like a Disney Disney character has always looked neotenic, right? They have the big eyes, small faces. Right.
1: The big eyes comes from, again, an effect of estrogen. What it does is, I mean, actually, men have bigger eyes in turn because men are bigger than females. They have bigger eyes. But the way the eyes are set in the head is sexually dimorphic. And the way that female eyes are set is um, they don't have the development of the eyebrow ridge here if more estrogen that controls the growth of that bone and all this bone around the eyes, so the eyes the eyes appear bigger uh, in in females than in males. Testosterone, on the other hand, uh, increases the growth of the uh, all this. Right, uh, you
0: get that ridge right above the, exactly. the eyebrow.
1: Exactly. So all of that's well re- researched, and uh, there's nothing uh, controversial in anything I've said so far.
0: Yeah, Yeah, no, that's very interesting in terms of the sexual dimorphism and for whoever uh, uh, needs a definition there, that just means that, you know, humans are separated into male and female. And the fact that testosterone uh, masculinizes the features and estrogen feminizes the features and we've evolved to be attracted to these masculine and feminine characteristics. Now, there is a component of health that goes into beauty. Where does that play in and how does that, what, what markers do we find beautiful in that sense?
1: The female, so female estrogen, estrogen, estrogenization of the female is correlated with general health and with reproductive health. So basic reproductive capacity of the female is a big component of health. And so Uh, the more estrogen, basically, we could say, in short, in biology, we use the term uh, phenotypic and genetic quality of an individual. And it applies in all species, not just humans. But phenotypic and genetic quality of the female is estrogen dependent. And that relates to her health, uh, all kinds of diseases and uh, physical conditions and reproductive capacity are related to feminization of the female by estrogen. And even the bone structure, we got into facial bones, but a lot is known about just the basic bone structure of the body. So a very estrogenized female uh, bone structure throughout the body we call petite. So she's petite and that's attractive of course. And that's that's what they're talking about is the way her general skeleton is measured. Uh, is, is constructed, affected by estrogen during puberty and adolescence. And the male, uh, testosteroneization in males masculinizes males, and testosterone masculinizes females too. Uh, and estrogen is prettier than testosterone effects in, in women. And testosterone effects are uh, uh, more attractive in men uh, than estrogen effects. Men have estrogen too, of course. And so you can measure uh, the effect of uh, testosterone on facial bones of men, on shoulder. It affects uh, shoulder width and uh, uh, so forth in men. And, And so physical attractiveness, per se, boils down to, as I mentioned, a certification of health. And we've only talked about one component of health so far, hormonal health. Right. And there are other components. So another big component that we've done a lot with is developmental health, you could call it. And that's developmental stability of the individual. So uh, the research has focused on symmetry, bilateral symmetry. So in forward-moving critters, forward-moving animals, the most adaptive form is bilateral symmetry so you know to think of an extreme example if you're if you say one leg is significantly shorter than the other you have drag right you lose, right you lose more energy when you move forward for all form, uh, forward-moving organisms insects people monkeys whatever birds bilateral symmetry is the optimal developmental goal However, perfect bilateral symmetry is very difficult to achieve developmentally. And because when you're developing, there are all kinds of environmental perturbations that throw off the ability to make a perfectly symmetric body. And genetic bad genes that you have and so forth can also, as we know, interfere with the development of a perfectly symmetric body. So the more symmetric an individual is, the more that individual has resisted environmental perturbations during development and the more that individual has fewer bad genes that interrupt development. So bilateral symmetry is a very good marker of phenotypic and genetic quality of the individual. And lots and lots of species have been studied in that regard for uh, mating success, attractiveness to the opposite sex, and so forth. Uh, years ago, actually, when, when during the symmetry revolution of research that <laughs> began in the nineties, I discovered it first in insects—the importance of symmetry—and a colleague of mine discovered it in uh, barn swallows. And then I got into wow. the, then I got into humans. We disco- made our discoveries of symmetry and, and its role in sexual selection simultaneously and independently. Uh, I was studying scorpion flies in Germany, and he was starting studying barn swallows in Denmark and- uh, Amazing. Yeah, the barn swallow tail symmetry. The, the females look at the symmetry of the male's tail in barn swallow.
0: Yeah, that's amazing <laughs> that that's, uh, you know, cross species that's oh, a yeah. marker for- Years ago,
1: it, I mean, the biologists got right on it. When we published our results on birds and, and insects, other biologists studied it in their favorite species. And by within a few years, there were uh, 50 species of animals in which it had been shown that symmetry is important in, in sexual selection, uh, mate choice and competition for mates and so forth. And then all, all in there, I was, I was doing a lot of stuff on, on uh, human symmetry and with colleagues, uh, a colleague of mine, Carl grommer at the University of Vienna, and I discovered the importance of facial symmetry in attractiveness judgments. So that's bilateral symmetry of the face. And uh, the face is an extremely complicated structure and very important. That's why we look at faces, it's got so much information in it. Uh, not right. just symmetry, but you got your you got your hormonal information in the face, testosterone, estrogen, you got know, your bilateral symmetry. And uh, of course, the face expresses things too—emotions, and it's got a lot of emotion, emotional content.
0: Right. There. We have a special area in the brain that perceives faces and recognizes mm-hmm. faces. Yeah,
1: we do. Um, and so, Gromer and I showed that bilateral uh, symmetry is related to facial attractiveness. And then another colleague uh, and I started working on body symmetry and we measure uh, 11 traits on on both sides of the body and take the difference in that and then sum those differences and that is a estimate of the individual's body, body uh symmetry like feet and fingers and elbows and ears and all that stuff and um and that uh, those symmetry measures correlate very importantly with uh people's Everyday lives, like in the mating domain.
0: Attractiveness.
1: Attractiveness, yeah. So more symmetric men, for example, we and others, I mean, there it it was a research explosion uh, in the beginning and about mid-90s of symmetry studies. And uh, men, more symmetric men uh, uh, have more mating, have more mates, more higher uh, mate number. Uh, more symmetric women do not. That's, it's because women, men and women are different in that regard. Pursuing high mate number, that's a male thing. And so symmetric men are more attractive, are physically attractive, they have more mates, um, they uh, are less faithful in romantic relationships, and that has something to do with their physical attractiveness to other women. And uh, we did a study, uh, a detailed study of Romantically involved couples, looking at uh, faithfulness of males and females in those relationships, and also we did a study of uh, female uh, copulatory orgasm frequency in relation to uh, the symmetry of the male that she's paired with. And more symmetric males uh, fire more uh, copulatory orgasms, uh, independently by the males and independently by the females, and. so that, uh, that was interesting, the, the orgasm uh, work. And uh, so uh, symmetric males, uh, are, you know, just healthier, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one component of physical attractiveness also related to health. And then the third um, big one in regard to health and attractiveness is age, so senescence. Yeah, as we as we age, uh, we senesce. Of course, and all organisms do, and that's a general deterior- deterioration of, of everything. <laughs> <Senescence>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we lose uh, because because it's a general deterioration. We're designed by uh, evolution by selection in the past to pay attention to age because age. I mean, you know, age in women is very strongly related to reproductive capacity. So as women age, reproductive capacity declines very strongly. And as men age, reproductive capacity declines as well, just not as strongly as in as in women. And also in uh, you know in ancestral environments, being uh, you know fit and able to hunt and all that stuff that's age dependent. Whether you can hear. Hear the what you're trying to, you know, the game animals and can see them and all that. All that's age dependent, so age is another factor of the three. So you got hormonal health, you got developmental health, and you got age-related uh, health that comprise physical attractiveness, and that is a component of mate value. So, uh, in all organisms, your, your health is. Uh, you know, we could be talking here about the barn swallows or peacocks or uh, scorpion flies and so forth. And it's the same, same kind of thing. Health is really the right. criterion that, that is important in an individual's um, ability to succeed in competition for mates and to, and mate choice uh, uh, health. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. I think, you know, that's, First of all, important to know, because it's the truth, you know, understanding what we find attractive and what we find beautiful isn't an arbitrary social construction, but there are are very deep reasons, evolutionary reasons why we find certain things attractive. And for anyone who's listening, who's, uh, you know, losing hope here, I I do want to go back to, you know, this uh, central piece that we've been talking about, and that's health. And, you know, that's something, that's something that you do have control over. Uh, maybe yep. you don't have a control over your developmental health or your symmetry, but your hormonal health and your physical fitness, those are things that you really do have control over. Your nutrition, you know, that shows up in your skin. Uh, your hormones uh, make a huge difference on the way you look. I, when I was 25, I was living in a, a mold infested apartment and I didn't know it. And slowly, slowly, it was, you know, just poisoning me. And my hormones fell to the level of a menopausal woman for, you know, six months. Yeah, and and you start to, to see changes and your hair starts to fall out. And I was 25, you know, but you start to see the body responding to the hormones or the lack thereof. So, you know, whoever is listening, going to the gym, eating right, you know, making sure uh, you're not living in a mold infested apartment, or you're not exposed to uh, too many toxins. Uh, You know, these things uh, really show up. And, uh, you know, I heard um, someone joking that he came back from a high school reunion, Uh, you know, he's around 35. And one of the things he said is that you really see people's habits in their faces around that age. You know, you can get away with uh, smoking uh, and drinking too much, you know, when you're 18 and uh, you wake up fresh. But when you're 35, those kinds of habits really show up. So if you want to maintain that vitality, that youthfulness, that health, you know, look and still look attractive, uh, you you do have a lot of control over it.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot you can do to, to, uh, you know, look better in terms of uh and then you know and then there's the there's the cosmetic side too of course that is very popular <laughs> so, yeah. and all that is supportive of what i'm saying you, you know so women uh for example do tummy tucks and that's to improve the waist to hip ratio women do uh breast symmetry uh you know they make make them more symmetric not less symmetric if, if right. you, i don't know
0: I don't know yeah. that I would recommend surgery. <laughs> you know, I would recommend finding a, um, the you know a high mate, uh, a high value mate that uh doesn't doesn't require uh, surgeries to, uh you know, to works. find attractive.
1: Ancestrally, yes. uh, it just mimics the same markers, and and because it's evolutionarily novel, we haven't evolved to detect the difference between the, the surgical and the and the natural. Yeah.
0: On that, you know, I saw that they manipulated the hip waist ratio of, you know, they took photos of women and they manipulated the hip waist ratio to uh, such an extreme that no woman has ever (laughs) existed with that hip waist ratio, you know, um, a Kim Kardashian, you know, but to the extreme and men rated that as more attractive. So, so there, there is almost something that, you know, there, we have these certain, uh, maybe inclinations um, built into us, but there's no, uh, no switch to show us, you know, where, <laughs> where that inclination has gone too far. If there's, you know, a, um, yeah. a tendency to prefer uh, a higher uh, waist-to-hip ratio, we can't tell when it becomes artificial. So that's also uh, interesting to note. Uh, I think um, staying as natural as you can and as healthy as you can is usually a good
1: that's good uh, advice. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> something and, uh something was, I can I feel comfortable uh, promoting here.
1: <laughs> the effects of smoking and other uh abusive things you can do to your skin. I mean uh, that yeah. as you say, by the time you're 35, you're going to see see some of that. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um definitely the wrinkles show up and uh Yeah. Um, So so there's a lot a lot we can do. And, you know, with that said, not uh, pretend like these things don't exist, you know, so understanding the the dynamics in uh, sexual attraction, I think is important, uh, especially if you're, you know, dating and looking for a partner and uh, not ignoring them, Uh, because I think some of the, you know, body positivity messages that we hear today are a little problematic because they kind of uh, normalize, you know, unhealthy habits, um, right. and that's not helping anyone.
1: Well, I mean, you know, you could imagine uh, some research where you take people who claim, say, on uh, ideological grounds that they don't pay any attention to beauty, when they're looking for mates, and right. then you ask them to rate the rate the faces or the bodies and so forth, and they come out the same way.
0: I'm sure, I'm sure you would see that. I'm sure you would see that. I think uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we can spout ideology (laughs) as much as we want. But when it comes to, you know, the people that we choose for ourselves, I think, I think we would see that show up there. The
1: design of our brains by evolution will come through every time.
0: Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. So I want to switch gears for a moment uh, and to talk about your parasite stress theory, uh, which is absolutely brilliant and I think uh, will be very new uh, for people in a uh-huh. way that it really shows how our values and our you know belief systems are biologically rooted, uh, you know, beyond, you know, personality and genetics. So give us the layout of this theory.
1: Okay. Uh, just stop me uh, where whenever, you know.
0: Yeah, I'll jump in.
1: Okay. It's uh, uh, the parasite stress theory. We call it the parasite stress theory of values and sociality. And um, it's a scientific theory about how, We get our values. That is the causes of our core values, and I'll tell you what I mean by core values in a minute. But um, on the um, on the it's an ecological and evolutionary theory of the causes of our values. So on the ecological time frame, that is during our lifetime, um, we're growing up and we create. Excuse me. We create a, uh, uh, you know, our cultural information uh, by mechanisms in the brain that are specific to picking up cultural items selectively, like, you know, comparable to language, uh, language, uh, psychological adaptation that uh, picks up the local language, even the local dialect and discriminates as an individual's growing up It's that but we get other aspects of culture from similarly uh, from similar psychological adaptations, but that are specifically designed to pick up uh, other types of cultural information. And values are very important to us in, uh, as part of our cultural repertoire that we acquire as we grow up. So that's on the ecological timescale during an individual's lifetime. And uh, what the theory says is that um, as individuals grow, if they're exposed to the effects of infectious disease as they're growing up and information about infectious disease, then they pick up values on the, uh, on the right of the continuum of values. So uh, more conservative values as they're, when they're growing up and encountering uh, through effects of diseases on them, number of times you're... Immune systems activated, the intensity of that activation, and so forth. And information in the local culture about disease threats, all that information affects which way on the ideological continuum of values you go. And high high disease, you go toward conservative, and I'll explain why later. Low disease encounters growing up, you go toward the liberal end and uh, of values. Let's take conservatism first. So what conservatism values do is uh, they're defensive against infectious diseases as follows. So first you have uh, the component of xenophobia that uh, we know as well, uh, very much, very fundamentally related to uh, conservative values. And the more conservative you are, the more xenophobic you are.
0: So right, just for people who might not be familiar with the term, what does xenophobia mean here?
1: Yeah, xenophobia is outgroup, dislike, and avoidance. So outgroup. Uh, and so people that are very, very xenophobic don't like people that look different than them, that talk different from them, that have different views of the world, and so forth. So it's an out-group, dislike, and avoidance. And uh, the reason that is uh, effective against infectious diseases is infectious diseases and hosts, I know we're talking about humans as hosts, co-evolve. It's a constant co-evolutionary race between hosts and their infectious diseases. And um, you you in the in the, uh, the outcome of that,, uh, uh, co-evolutionary race with infectious diseases is that hosts are relatively immune to local diseases, but the co-evolutionary races are geographically very uh, specific. So it's uh, localized, geographically very localized With infection. You get different uh, strains of TB in different neighborhoods and so forth.
0: Right, uh, right.
1: Even, you know, uh, certain diseases in, uh, uh, classic example, uh, villages in Sudan, different diseases and, and, and villages that are close to one another and so forth. So it's a very localized phenomenon. It's co race between hosts and their diseases. And so you have the relative immunity to local diseases, but you're not immune, to, relatively not immune to diseases outside your local realm. Of people and that you interact with, these the the local people have that similar immunity, and so they're safe to interact with. Whereas those people outside have maybe carrying diseases that'll that would be detrimental to you. So the localization, uh, extreme localization of host-parasite coevolutionary races means that xenophobia, which is characteristic of conservatism, is defensive against. Those foreign diseases. Okay, and so the the uh, another part of the uh, of the uh, theory is that uh, the ethnocentrism in general, and it's a localization of your social contacts. So your parochial in your your uh, social contacts, and that's an in-group preference. And also, you have very strong ties with these local people, including your extended family. And that provides safety when the diseases come. So it manages infectious diseases, the the, uh, ethnocentrism that you have, these strong ties with your extended family and so forth. We did a study about family structure in relation to uh, conservatism and liberalism across the world, all the countries of the world. And the more more infectious diseases, more conservatism, the more extended uh, the, the family structure is of so people. Whether you're talking about the USA or Iran or whatever, uh, works works beautifully. Um, so you have the, the the theory really is to to uh, protect you against infectious diseases, your values do, and um, to deal with the level of infectious diseases. So conservatism. Uh, uh, protective against infectious diseases, and um, and then you could go, go to liberalism. So liberalism is uh, has its benefits. You have a you have a big social group. Okay, you're open. You're not uh, uh, biased toward people that are like you and look like you and talk like you and think like you. You're open. You have a bigger social group. You have a bigger mating pool as a result of that. More mating options because you're open. You don't mind people that are uh, different color, to speak a little different. That's fine. Liberals are much more likely to say marry outside their uh, type and so forth. That's well known. That kind of thing and date outside their type and all that. Um, so you yeah, have this bigger social pool also with liberalism. You have openness to new ideas, and that's closed. Uh, all that's closed uh, in conservatism, closed-mindedness is called. And uh, but liberals, you're you're more open, and that allows you to uh, have a flow of new ideas. You 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 know, uh, you evaluate new ideas rather than just ignore new ideas and avoid new ideas altogether, as in conservatism. So uh, liberalism has its benefits, but the, the, the cost of liberalism have to do with exposure, more exposure to infectious diseases, because your openness to others that are different from you will expose you to infectious disease. The openness to ideas coming from the outside can expose you to infectious diseases. And so liberalism is adaptive uh, as, a, as a cultural uh, ideology uh, when disease levels are low and uh, conservatism is adaptive when disease levels are high. So that's kind of the theory, and then we tested it in lots and lots of ways, and it's a big research area now. A lot of people are looking at it, and that's, that makes me happy. Amazing. Uh, yeah. But what we did first is, I mean, just this straightforward, more infectious diseases in a country or state of the United States, uh, the more uh, conservatism you have. and. Cross-cultural psychologists and political scientists have measured they've been very interested in values. so they measured conservatism and uh, collectivism, same thing basically as conservatism throughout the world and in the United States and so forth. So the data in the literature on the values uh, that we pulled from the literature, and then when their good uh, the disease data, too, across across the world, across the states of the U.S., the World Health Organization, data like that. They keep uh, disease data, you know, updated all the time. You can use their data, there's another data source, too, Gideon, that does a really fine job uh, on uh, disease, and the World Health Organization, Gideon, uh, the the disease uh, data about the same, because they do it right. And then in the U.S., uh, there's Center for Disease Control, and they keep up with diseases for the states. So we had U.S. state data, international data on diseases, and we had this uh, literature full of information about values that cross-cultural psychologists and political scientists had accumulated and they worry a lot about how to measure values right and so forth, you know, and so they got it. They got all that. and We just put them together. More infectious diseases across the world or across the states, the more conservative people are, and uh, so we did. Uh, we did that, yeah. And others have, with the with the recent pandemic, you know, that's been very interesting because uh, the last pandemic, you know, major pandemic with uh, with flu. Uh, in uh, 1918 and so forth was uh, very interesting. It's turned out there's been a lot of research. on Right,
0: the the Spanish flu.
1: Yeah, Spanish flu. The effect of that pandemic on the change of values. And here is the story. Um, The Third Reich, Germany, uh, did a lot of bad things. But one thing they did was... They kept data on all kinds of stuff. There were data that some scholars uh, dredged out from those old data sources on the number of TB cases in each city in Germany, the number of of, uh, uh, of, uh, several other diseases, including flu cases, and what they showed and then they had data on the uh, votes for the uh, Nazi Party in uh, 1930 and uh, in the 30s uh, by city. More cases of flu, in particular, the more the uh, people voted for the Nazis. So that's incredible. Ex- that's, that's yeah, that's fascism. That's that's overall the way to the right end. That fascism is just extreme conservatism. And uh, so that worked beautifully for Germany,
0: right? Right. I wanna I wanna jump in there and and yep. say a few things about that because, you know, this distinction between left and right, and and we'll get into the terminology because I think you know any uh, uh, Burkean conservatives might uh, <laughs> might find offense that we're uh, conflating the two, but if we just look at, you know, this distinction between right and left. And the right-wing authoritarianism that we've seen throughout history. Yeah. Germany is a perfect example because, as we know, in terms of personality traits, people who are, uh, you know, on the right wing, they're higher in conscientiousness, specifically orderliness, which makes them very meticulous, and they love data, and they love to, you know, keep tabs on um, on the d- diseases in the different uh, cities, as they've done. Uh, and they 're lower in openness, so these two personality traits really uh, speak to what you 're saying of being uh, much more careful about securing borders much more suspicious oh, yeah. of outsiders and yeah that's I mean, yeah. yeah and that's oh. and that 's incredible that you you can you know relate that to the infectious diseases and you know the Spanish flu and how it caused. Uh, the rise in this right-wing authoritarianism—it's incredible. Because on the other hand, you know the the liberalism that we've enjoyed, you know, in the last two hundred years or so, you know, since the Enlightenment, we like to think that we're more progressive than our ancestors and smarter and wiser. Uh, but you understand that there there is the understanding first of all that technological advancements usually. Uh, bring about uh, cultural changes. But here you understand that it's not only the technological advancements, it's actually the fact that we have enjoyed areas with less infectious diseases. And there's, uh, it's no surprise that, you know, the enlightenment happened in uh, higher altitude places. Absolutely.
1: uh, target specifically. Yeah. Your, your own target. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All the, all the, you know, big, technological uh, advances, intellectual advances, you could call it generally. And uh, that's high latitude stuff. Yeah.
0: Right, right. And we are, um, yeah. you know, we are in a constant uh, dynamic relationship with our environment. And one of the yeah. things that I found very interesting in your work is that there are more uh, tribes or ethnic groups. If mm-hmm. you look at, you know, lower latitude places, you know, closer to the, uh, to the equator, um, mm-hmm. you, you have more, uh, more variety, you know, of languages, of, uh, of ethnic groups within...
1: Depends, uh, religions and languages yeah, are predicted by, uh, yeah. by more parasites, and that's because of the xenophobia that uh, fractionates and factionates fa- and, uh, uh, a culture. You have a culture, and uh, you get disputes, and you get localization of values, you get xenophobia, that creates fractionation and factionation, and you get new cultures arising. And um, the, you know, the religious scholars have long been interested in why there's so much variation across the world in number of religions. I mean, you're talking tremendous variation. And the same with the linguists interested in language diversity. And we showed them. You predict it all very strongly on the basis of Infectious disease level. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. Well,
1: it's and to, um, to the rise of the National Socialist Party.
0: Uh,
1: yes, th- there's another story about Italy. It just came to light. New paper, relatively new. Oh,
0: tell me about so, it.
1: Yeah. So, r- fascism, extreme fascism, uh, high, off, you know, the highest authoritarianism, arose three times, at about the same time. So you got Nazi Germany, you got uh, Japan, and you got uh, Italy. So uh, the Italy story is the same as the Nazi story. The, the data on flu uh, and flu levels. Flu is the best one. I mean, there was TB and lots of other diseases too back then, of course. And, um, but TB is the best predictor. And, uh, and in uh, uh, Mussolini's uh, uh, program, uh, more, you know, more more uh, flu cases, uh, the more uh, votes for uh, Mussolini's gang. And uh, Mussolini was an interesting character in all this. He outlawed uh, handshaking. In Italy. Oh, wow. Yeah. He, <laughs> disgusting thing touching some stranger's hand.
0: <laughs> and they're a very kissy uh, <laughs> culture, too. You know, they give like two kisses whenever they say hello.
1: Yeah. So that's very cool. We don't have data on on Japan yet, but maybe there's data somewhere somebody will find.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting Uh, to to look at. That was kind of a
1: different kind of thing. It was an emperor in Japan.
0: Right. I mean, that's
1: typical authoritarian. You have this uh, uh, holy uh, leader, you know, that everybody follows and wants uh whether it be an emperor or you call it something else you know hitler
0: right very collectivist culture as well it's oh. interesting to see uh the history there uh, in terms mm. of the diseases but i think you know it's it's uh important to note as well that both of these strategies conservatism and liberalism th- there's trade-offs right there are strategies yeah. that uh you know they complement each other and neither are good at the extreme but we we need both we need the structure and we need tradition and we need the family unit Uh, but we also need to renew ideas and you know to be tolerant to new people and you know we need innovation and we need inspiration and creativity and there's dangers uh to, to each sides of these when we take them to the extreme uh, I think what's very interesting today, we're seeing things kind of flip on their head. You know, we're seeing left wing authoritarianism come about. It's interesting that, you know, in terms of uh, COVID, for instance, you, you saw more kind of a hypochondriac a reaction uh, from the left. You know, the, the left were wearing masks and, uh, you know, were, were more promoting lockdowns. Uh, than the right. So, what what was your take on the COVID situation? Actually,
1: the, actually the research on masks is yeah. uh, more conservative the place, the more mask use and more following the rules. That's what the study, the research shows.
0: Really? Really? Yeah.
1: The only outlier is uh, Republicans in the United States.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
1: And, and uh, they were following their uh, emperors. Uh, God, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Trump said it was just all a hoax. There's nothing to it, and all that stuff, and not you know wearing a mask was just being PC and all that. And so, but that was a very localized thing in the United States, for right? Right. People. The masks
0: got uh, branded. Um, yeah. With the uh, with the wrong side, I see. I see.
1: Somebody, I some think, of your, yeah. some of your viewers may when we've talked about latitude a little bit, you and I. Yeah. I should mention just that that's a that's a very strong pattern that infectious disease is, is predicted by latitude. Uh, the higher the latitude, the less infectious diseases. And that has right. The,
0: and let's explain why why that is actually.
1: Yeah, it's the ecology of infectious disease distribution, and the reason is um, diseases in general uh, like it wet and warm, and they do better if it's wet and warm in general. Right, tropical. tropical Yeah. And so, you know, in the equator, you have the most uh, infectious diseases and so forth. And uh, Denmark and Sweden and places like that, uh, you know, very high latitude, uh, the most liberal places in the world uh, don't have many infectious diseases. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I always wondered, um, you know, this is uh, purely speculation, but why uh, philosophy uh, was born in ancient Greece You know, I always thought it was something about the ecology there and there's something um, perfect about the weather there, you know, that it's, uh, it's hot. So it's, uh, you don't, uh, you know, you're, you're not hibernating for six months out of the year, but it's also dry. So there aren't too many um, diseases going around compared to places like uh, India, for instance. Sure. All right. So it's, uh, it's interesting. We obviously don't have data um, going back, but maybe maybe the, the current ecology there uh, is comparable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be interesting to look at. I wanted to uh, to speak also about this idea of ethnocentrism, because yep. that really plays a role when you have uh, more diseases, ethnocentrism not only in terms of fear of others, right? But maintaining that family unit, why is it important in places like these?
1: The in-group unit. So, you know, making sure you're socializing with people that have the same beliefs and so forth. And that can be within the family or, or broader, you know, local people. And that has to do with the um Extreme localization of the coevolutionary races that I mentioned. So that's why you get high ethnocentrism in high disease areas. Said differently, you get high uh, uh, ethnocentrism in conservative areas, and the more conservative the more ethnocentric. Yeah,
0: right, right. And yeah. that um, yeah. you know, when when you're when you're sicker, uh, you're going to need uh, people taking care of you, right? Yeah. So there's there's Absolutely. a strategy there. Of keeping the family unit uh, very close, uh, which I found really interesting in your work, uh, that it's there is not,
1: a the theory is a theory about um, you know your values in relation to levels of infectious disease to to avoid infectious disease and also to manage infectious disease and the ethnocentric right. is important in the management aspect of the theory, yeah.
0: Right. And I found it interesting also that um, you mentioned uh, nepotism, <laughs> which is something that we see in, uh, and, you know, in countries that are closer to the equator and, you know, we call oh, it corruption yeah. and uh, in our, yeah. what's that?
1: That's what we did with the family structure, uh, cross-cultural, across country and cross-U.S. state data. It's, uh, you know, basically the extension of your nepotism, how far out in terms of, So in conservative places, uh, real, real conservative places, they're in contact with distant cousins and so forth all the time, and part of that has to do with something we haven't discussed uh, in relation to the values, and it is uh, what biologists call philopatry. Philo
0: Mm.
1: means love, patry, you you know where you're from. Philopatry, right, right, like
0: patriotism.
1: Patriotism, yeah, comes from the same. Word etymology. So uh, in high disease areas, it makes sense to stay put because those habitats out there far away are going to have infectious diseases that you're not immune to. So philopatry is very characteristic of uh, conservative places. They just stay. I mean, you know, they um, live generation after generation where they're where they're born and uh, right more conservative, the more that effect, And, you know, there's studies like uh, how often do people travel, say, in the U.S.? There have been some studies and that's related to core values, too. Uh, Right.
0: Liberals have passports (laughs) and conservatives usually don't. There you go. go. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I found it interesting as well that, um, you know, spicy foods are also a component here of, you know, places closer to the equator because you have uh, higher levels of, you know, parasites and, uh, and whatnot. Yeah, the, spice. uh, the, the spices help we're to block that out.
1: We're good antibiotics. Onions and garlic and stuff like that are killed. Together. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's incredible. How our, uh, culture, you know, we, we talk about culture as if it's a human invention, but it's in a constant dynamic relationship with the environment we're in. Right. Culture Thanks. and nature kind of go hand in hand. And, uh, um, culture really is a response to nature in a sense. Uh, so I think it's a, it's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I wanted to jump in to one of your, you know, very important books. You wrote the book, the natural history of rape. And I think, uh, you know, we're, we're going to talk about it academically. And obviously this is, uh, uh, not a light issue, and for anyone who has uh you know actually gone through it and, and suffered from it um, you know all all due respect and we um you know as as a country here have um, been reminded about of you know what uh what warfare can bring and uh, we've um, we've been reminded that mass rape is um, is a potential uh, when it comes to warfare. And I think you've also shown that that's something that you see in cultures uh, throughout history. So I think one of the very important pieces of your research is that you show the evolutionary reasons um, for why rape exists. And just to preface Anyone who thinks that this is uh, an excuse, right? The naturalistic fallacy. If it's uh, if it comes from nature, then it's uh, it's okay or appropriate. I think it's more important to understand the truth behind how we work, if we have any chance of creating a society and a system, a social system that's able to deal with these things and reduce the likelihood of them occurring. So. Yeah. That's just kind of to to introduce uh, this topic. You have a few questions uh, listed in the first chapter of what the evolutionary approach can help us um, answer when it comes to sexual coercion. So I'll start with uh, the first one. Why are males usually the rapists and females usually the victims?
1: Yeah. That goes back to a fundamental uh, sex difference in, uh, in humans and uh, other animals, too. So males, uh, males are sexually selected for high partner number. So they evolve uh, as a result of sexual selection for traits, psychological traits of uh, being motivated to obtain high mate number, pursue high mate number, and so forth. Females uh, aren't; they're they're not a high mate number sex pursuit sex, and the reason for that has to do with the sexual difference in the um, in the cost of um, reproduction. So, so a male can a male can reproduce successfully by uh, a relatively cheap ejaculate and a few minutes of time. Diverted from other things important to reproductive success and survival, so that's the male's minimum necessary for successful reproduction. Now contrast that with the female minimum for successful reproduction. Say in our species, you start off with a big gamete, and then you've got uh, you've got pregnancy, and that goes on for nine months, and then you've got childcare. After that, and females do most of the direct child care in our species. The males are, do have a very important role too in raising successful children, but uh, and family and so forth. But there's this tremendous asymmetry in the minimum investment necessary for successful reproduction. As a result of that, throughout evolutionary history, males have males have been favored that maximize the number of mates uh, because that increases reproductive success because of that small minimum investment necessary for successful reproduction. So high premium put on high mate number, that's one thing that's important for understanding the answer to your question. And also um, men with this, because of their um, design for pursuing high mate number, they overestimate, in women, the women's sexual interest. There's a lot of research on that. Um, Right. Yeah, Yeah, David
0: Buss has done uh, quite a bit of research on that. uh, Men Uh, misperceive, uh, you know, a friendly hello as a sexual interest. Right. And uh, women usually underperceive, which is another component here.
1: They're more discriminating and uh, logical and uh, realistic about what's going (laughs) on. When boy meets a girl, so to speak, yeah and um, so that's part of the part of the part of the package too the the design of men's brains sue high mate number the uh, the uh seeing sexual interest when it's not there, and those two things alone are going to you can see how that would lead to more rape, right?
0: Right, and why is it that younger males are you, rape more than yeah, older males?
1: Very strong pattern. Um, younger males are just more risk prone. Younger females are more risk prone too, but males are more risk prone than females, and that's seen in all the accident mortality data, uh, even even before puberty, males are dying at a higher and is rate. Is that
0: driven by testosterone mostly? It's-
1: Yeah, on an approximate level, but sexual selection in terms of ultimate causation built Mm -hmm. the risk proneness because male ancestors that didn't take any risk uh, weren't going to reproduce. They weren't going to go out there and get the food that then they could trade for sex and, and, uh, you know, be brave in warfare and all that kind of stuff, be brave in male male competition in general. Right. Risk taking uh, as a, mating premium throughout human evolutionary history for males. Uh, so you get the, these things and then, uh, let's see, that's, uh, that's you know, basically, basically it for the sexual asymmetry and minimum investment means uh, right. overrated and then- sex. And also another thing though, that could be mentioned there and, and to answer mm-hmm. fully is men's sexual interest in a female and arousal, the, the actual uh, erect penis uh, and motivation to use it, um, that's, men don't require uh, willingness on the part of the female. So there's no, uh, she doesn't have to be interested. Uh, and men, you know, there's a lot of research on, on men's uh, arousal just to video and audio depictions of, and men's interest in porn, for example, uh, all that's, uh, uh, you know, the female's not interested in, 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 uh, in mating with the guy who's watching the porn. Or something. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. That's not, not a necessary requirement. That would make uh, um, you know, raping a man more difficult in that end if a woman uh, would that's want right. to. Also
1: men, uh, men rape children. Uh, and that the, the kids aren't interested. Obviously, men rape farm animals commonly. The, ca- the cows and sheep aren't interested. So there's a lot of evidence that uh, for that fact, that uh, men's sexual arousal does not require interest right. in a partner.
0: And what is the age of the average rape victim?
1: Um, it's strongly related to for male female rape, which is the the, the the typical kind i mean male male rape is very common too and um because again males um high mate number you know and they're uh, very easy to arouse sexually and so forth and um but the the pattern with female victims is um is reproductive age females we can start there so you got prepubertal females uh, uh, and Those are girls. One could call those girls. They're not women yet, in the sense of having reproductive capacity before puberty. So, pubertal up to about uh, 35, age 35, by, by 35 in the in the big data sets and so forth, the victim uh, victimization rates of females goes down. And then you have, I mean, you know, there are different kinds of rapes. Um, but still, the that pattern uh, uh, holds of young females. You know, females are reproductive age, and right. so the I mean, the the the, uh, the data peak actually in lots of data sets on about eighteen to twenty, and those are those are ages of peak current fertility. You know, with lots of females, you get you get an adolescence period where there's relatively few ovulatory cycles. It's even been called adolescent sterility. It's not sterility, it's adolescent reduced fertility. And then at about 18 to 20, you get you know, lots and lots of uh, ovulatory cycles. The females looking real good in terms of estrogen ornamentation that we talked about. And um, so those are, the, Peaking or say 18 to 25. Yeah. And then right. it declines.
0: What would you say to the argument that rape is just about power? It's not about sex.
1: Well, I would say that uh, uh, that sexual arousal of the male perpetrator uh, is necessary for the rape. And it's necessary for the rape. And it's sufficient. You don't need the other things. To explain rape also I would say that rape um, just like lots of other motivations can have uh, like other behaviors can have multiple motivations I mean you know so if the guy the guy's sexually aroused obviously if he's got a, if he's got a, uh, an erection he's sexually aroused there's no other way to explain his erection. And then if he's if he's raping a female, if it's physically forced sexual coercion, there are other kinds of sexual coercion we could talk about, but the physically forced uh, sexual coercion, that is rape, if it's that, then obviously he's motivated to control her, right? to accomplish the sex. So you have to distinguish between the sex and the means of getting the sex. And the means of getting the sex include Physical uh, control of the female and so forth, and there's been a lot of research on. I you mean, know, so rapes that include murder are very, very rare in actuality. So the guy's not there. If, if 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 the point were to brutalize the female and so forth, uh, then the, you know the mortality rate of victims would be very quite high, and um, and you know the female so. Uh, that's what I would say to those who think, and there is that tradition of thought, but they're way outside of reality.
0: Um, Yeah. And I think it's problematic when, um, you know, you're sending young girls off to college and you're not equipping them with the facts, you know, the fact that men are more risk prone. They're more likely to, um, you know, to assume that you're interested uh, they'll um, you know, there are those that will conveniently ignore, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. um, protests and being careful um, is really, really important. Just knowing that these facts exist and, right. you know, that you you do have power in, in the situations that you put yourself and yeah. n- not to not to pretend like these things are only, uh, motivated by power and that, you know, men and women are exactly the same. Um, and it's, it's harder for young women to, um, you know, filter out the assholes. <laughs> the, the radar has not been calibrated yet. That happens, you know, and females
1: um, themselves are very sexual. So, you know, it's, uh, it's tough. And that's, that's one reason, uh, that, uh, Craig Palmer and I started that research. We wanted it's for women uh, knowledge uh, of uh, sexuality and uh, what's going on with rape and other just sexuality in general and sex differences and all is is uh, is power when it comes to women's ability to control their lives in general and especially their sexual lives. You got to know, uh, know what's going on with those males. and. Uh, you know, yeah, that's, right. one, that's one reason we wrote the book. The other reason is I, my, I've, much of my research is in the uh, domain of what biologists call sexual selection. And if you're interested in sexual selection, you're interested in sexual coercion, because that's one type of right, sexual right. selection. Yeah, one domain of sexual selection. Mate choice and competition for mates is another
0: other domain. Right. And you said that there are types of sexual coercion, right? It's not only um, right. not physical only forcing, right? right. So this what, what would rape. those
1: be? Right. Uh, the other two types are um, intimidation and harassment. So the way that works, and, and it's like chimps have all three kinds too. Uh, it's not just a human thing. But so what the male does with harassment is he, he harasses the female, Inflicting costs on her, therefore, to the point where she complies, and she—it's—it's circum—it's she, like physically forced uh, copulation in the sense of circumventing female choice. That's what—that's what sexual coercion basically does, and that's why it's so terrible for women uh, because it circumvents a major avenue of uh, ancestral and current. Uh, Uh, reproductive success, Uh, mate choice, choosing the mate and the sire of your kid. Uh, But so the male harasses her to the point where she complies and gives him a copulation to avoid further costs. And intimidation is a similar thing. Intimidation, the male instills fear in the female. So I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill your kids, or do something like that. Um,
0: Right, or fire you. That is a complaint that's often heard, right?
1: Right, right. That's uh, the high status men and get into right, that right. That's one type of one type of rape category. You've got, uh, you know, the bulk of rapes are by young men who are socially disfranchised. That's the bulk uh, by far. And then you get into the category of of uh, of of uh, men who are high status. That have are in situations that they of impunity, really, really of impunity. If they have enough money and status, they can be basically uh, they can get and, away with it. Get away with
0: it, basically, yeah. And
1: they can sometimes get away with it in some of these high-profile cases re- recently of serial rape because the female really needs the male support, like to get a acting job or something like that, you
0: know, right. That isn't the norm though. That isn't usually no, how no, rape happens, no. but it, that is the high profile case. Yeah.
1: That... So the message there to women is, I mean, even if the guy's got a billion dollars and, uh, you know, he, he may be a guy who is fast track. We can talk about that life history stuff and, uh, you know, impulsive therefore, uh, and, uh, Thinks he's great and all that kind of stuff that goes along with a dark, dark triad kind of guys.
0: Right, narcissistic, psychopathic.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Even if he's, you know, Bill Crosby. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Even, even if he's got it all, it's, yeah. uh, it's amazing these cases. Uh, so. Uh, You know, you have shown that rape is something that we see in warfare across cultures. And, you know, we we experienced it uh, on October 7th and there were horrific accounts. And I don't think anything will be able to really explain uh, what happened there. Uh, But what have you found in terms of the history of this?
1: Yeah, the warfare thing is uh, very straightforward in regard to the benefit and cost situation. So in war, you have, the guys are out there with anonymity, really, say in Vietnam or somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: um, mm-hmm. uh, they You know, they're out there in the jungle and uh, they take over a village and uh, they, they kill the guys in the village or run them off. You got all these uh, young, attractive females left in the village and uh, you get lots of gang rape. And that, that goes not just Vietnam, but everywhere there, there is war. Uh, and um, an interesting anecdote that characterizes that, uh, two, two people, two uh, officers in the Vietnam, U.S.-Vietnam War, contacted me years ago when I was getting, doing this stuff. And uh, so they had been just uh, haunted and intrigued by the way their men behaved when they would go into So these are officers that are there right in the jungle with the guys. And they go into the village, they take over the village, they kill the guys or run the guys off. And then these, as they one of them put it, one of these officers put it, these church boys all of a sudden became gang rapists. And it has to do wow. with the low cost and high benefit, presumed high benefit of raping all those pretty young women wow that's the way it is wow it.
0: wow that's horrific
1: yeah church boys
0: the church boys
1: rapists all of a sudden and that intrigued him and the other one too the contacted the same kind of story as his experiences in
0: vietnam but what, uh, how how do you explain that shift you know if people who are in their daily lives you know um In in this case, you know, church boys living moral lives. What happens there that uh, that makes that okay?
1: Yeah, it's a perception of benefits and costs. And so basically what we have uh, foundational in this is the hypothesis that men have in their heads a uh, sexual coercion adaptation that pays attention Two, uh, perception of benefits and costs pertaining to adaptive rape in human evolutionary history. The conditions, you know, in human evolutionary history that generated the selection for this piece of machinery in male heads. Uh, is basically a rape adaptation or sexual coercion adaptation. Pays attention to benefits and costs. So when a, male, when a male is put in a situation where perception of benefits are high and costs perception of costs are low, then that can trigger immediately trigger as it did in the church boys uh, going into the village uh, and say you know a man that's uh, a woman's got a date with a strange guy stranger. He uh, seems to be a nice guy and all that kind of stuff. And they go uh, a long walk in the deep woods. That, too, could be a right low
0: cost.
1: Yeah, low cost. Right. Low cost.
0: Interesting. So that's,
1: Interesting. We need to know that. I mean, that's one reason we wrote the book is yeah. uh, that knowledge of sex differences in sexual design and uh, knowledge of basically men's sexuality and women's sexuality, their choice, and so forth—all that is critical to being safe out there in terms right. of the sexual That's environment. Right.
0: And I think you know it's important to to note here that n- not all men are rapists. Obviously, you know, even if we have this uh, natural selection uh, tendency, and and we have this phenomenon, you know, throughout history. Not all men rape. And I think the problem with the efforts to reduce rape today is that they're, um, you know, communicating in a way that only Mm -hmm. the good guys are hearing, right? Uh, This um, notion of toxic masculinity of any uh, sign of a masculine trait automatically and being inherently toxic. You know, the, the guys who are going to rape don't care that you're calling them toxic, right. but the good guys who actually, you know, want to fit in, they want to be good men, they're hearing this message. They're hearing that, you know, their sexual desire is creepy and that, you know, they're immediately uh, rapists if, um, if, you know, they ask you out on a date. And I think that's really yeah. terrified uh, young men today. Um, right.
1: There's, there's a lot yeah. of research on these guys who, I mean, if you take, if you take men in general and there's uh, been a lot of research and as you show them, you show them videos of uh, yeah. uh, rape situations and these, these are not uh, really rape situations of gratuitous violence. That turns off essentially all men, rape uh, videos, say, of gratuitous violence. But you show them just standard, you know, force force mating porn shows, and there's a lot of research on that. Uh, a lot of men don't don't, don't aren't aroused, uh, and but lots of ordinary men are. and This is college students, community men, and so forth, are raised to those uh, cues, and the ones that aren't um, are interesting. I mean, the, the approach we we have uh, worked on is it has to do with this life history variable of fast-track and slow-track. So guys that are fast-track are more impulsive, they're less right. in, in less empathy, uh, their uh, social situations are short-term, they're exploitative, manipulative, that's fast-track. And women can be fast track too. It's, a, it's called life history theory. That's a component of evolutionary theory. And mm-hmm. it depends on, on your rearing environment and uh, in terms of resource predictability, uh, uh, availability and predictability of resources when you're growing up. So basically, in short, if you grow up poor, um, resources, uh, you know, aren't available, not predictable and so forth that you need for uh, survival. Then you end up fast track. And the poorer you are, the more fast track. <clears throat> and these guys are very impulsive. They start sex earlier, a lot of coercive sex, all that kind of stuff. And uh, on the other hand, you raise guys with a resourceful uh, kind of an, uh, background, and you get slow track. These guys are, uh, they're not, in, you know, they can delay gratification, they're not impulsive. And um, they care about, they got empathy. They care about what they do to other people. And it's a very different mindset. So um, that's a big factor uh, to the life right. component. Right, of the- right.
0: And, you know, we do hear these high profile cases. There was the, you know, Stanford uh, swimmer, uh, like a guy on the swim team uh, who was found, uh, you know, that he, he raped people. Um, um, you know, one of the girls uh, at the university. And yeah. w- those are very high profile cases and we hear about them. So it paints this picture of, um, yeah. you know, the fortunate, um, you know, well-off, uh, arrogant guy. But in reality, uh, you know, as you're saying, there, there's less of a likelihood that you're yeah. going to find, um, you know, sexual co- coercion in those areas, although there, there's obviously date rape and, uh, and things like that in, uh, yeah. in colleges, well, but, but even again, that, you, yeah.
1: That has to do with, uh, you know, the track too, I'm sure, and probability that one's going to get raped if she goes out on a date with a stranger should be predicted on the basis, predictable on the basis of uh, his developmental background. And, right. that's and, and his <laughs>
0: impulsivity, his just level of impulsiveness
1: yeah that's you know these big it.
0: personality guys uh you know some of them are uh, a, are great
1: narcissism too you know yeah but if you think you're really great then you're over are <laughs> you know, in the narcissistic scale yeah.
0: if you were if you were um sending a, a young daughter to college today what kind of advice would you give her in a fatherly manner just so she handles herself in a way that can protect her what would you what would you say
1: well it would be uh it would be more than a a comment it would be a course, right. and uh <laughs> and i'm retired from teaching now but i for about 35 years i taught the a course the evolution of human sexuality we get into uh sexual coercion and so forth you know and emphasize the importance of uh, knowing what science is and how important it is to uh, apply science, to understand the real human condition. If you don't know the human condition, don't know anything about people really from the scientific point of view, then uh, you've got, uh, you don't have the the knowledge power that you need, especially in the sexual domain. So that's really a course, okay? And that's my daughter, uh, my daughters have been through my course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> many, many conversations.
1: <laughs> many, many conversations. But basically, I mean, Craig Palmer and I, we, uh, we uh, dedicated our book to the, to the females in our lives. And it's for them and it's for all females. That's one reason we wrote the book,
0: yeah. Right, so right. Do- I do, I do recommend it for people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you want to really uh, know about sexual coercion, that's uh, in people. That's where you start. Yeah, you know, with the scientific stuff. Yeah.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Randy. This has been so wonderful, so fascinating.
1: Anytime you want to talk again, I'm, I'm willing.